Ladies and gentlemen, I'm your special guest host, Tony Lavorna, and you're listening to the Little Beaver Historical Society Podcast. As I make my way through the Darlington Days Festival on its 20th anniversary, I come through, I can hear the music playing, and the parade is just finished. Today, joining me will be an author of a local book on the history and lore of this region. The next voice you're going to hear is that of Mr. Michael Kishbutcher. Michael has recently written Legends and Lore of Little Beaver Creek, produced by the Arcadia Book Company. Yeah, so in Ira's writings, I was surprised to find that he believed he had unearthed on a few hills in Candleton and Negley area, ancient mounds and, and ring forts. He found lots of carvings of animals and native scenes, and he even talked about grave robbing some of the burial mounds. There was a burial mound in Negley that probably was the one Ira was talking about. There's one here in Darlington that my grandfather told me about. It's just over by the lake. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. Michael, welcome. How are you today? I'm great, Tony. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to meet a fellow author and someone who's very interested in local folklore. I am very much interested in local folklore, but I don't know if I call myself an author quite yet. This is my first book, so I need to catch up to you. (laughs) That's okay. There's a lot of room for you. There's a lot of room for you in our field. And I like the fact that you've come to it with a healthy, skeptical view on points and that you're interested in also the history behind some of these legends. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, probably a good mesh of history and folklore. As as I found, um, they tend to both intertwine if you go back far enough. That's absolutely correct to say. Now, I understand you're a native son of of the Candleton, Pennsylvania, Negley, Ohio area. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I I first lived in Candleton until I was about six uh, when we moved to to Ohio. Uh, But my dad and his family are still Darlington residents. As a matter of fact, he started Darlington Days 20 years ago with my uncle, uh, and I'm not that good of a son, apparently, because this is the first one I've been to. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, we'll have Kevin strike that out of the interview <laughs> later. <laughs> well, hey, now I currently understand you reside, though, in Virginia. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? You have a wife. I do. I have a wife and two daughters. Um, we live in Virginia. Um, we ended up there after I retired from the Air Force. Um, thank you for your service, sir. Oh, thank you for your support. It's a beautiful countryside. It's, uh, we're in central Virginia, kind of two hours away from D.C., so we're, we're right there in the Blue Ridge. You're I see in the beautiful part, the scenic. Yes. I know myself. I love Virginia. I've been to Richmond many times in different areas. One of my favorite states, really. Now, you mentioned that in the, in the back of the book there that you work, or, well, I'm going to say you mentioned you work in what I would imagine to be a very interesting field. Um, can you tell us, or maybe not so much, tell us what you do for the government in a, in a, in a civilian capacity nonetheless? But. Yeah, I've been in the intelligence career field for the past 22 years, well, going on 22. Start off in the Air Force and then continue on now with the Department of Defense and the Defense Intelligence Agency. 
Now, don't be shy. I've, I've, I read your book. I looked at your information. You also have a master's of science and strategic intelligence as yes. well. So. Yes, yeah. yeah, from a Department of Defense school wow. there in D.C., um, well, most where impressive. I learned how to do uh, military capabilities are my specialty. So I, I assess adversarial capability to fight a war. Now, I'm going to start to turn a little bit to the topic of why we're here today, which is your book. But I noticed you stated at one point, and maybe you mean more as a skeptic or what have you. You said, I'm curious because you say, I don't necessarily believe in ghosts, but you do believe you know, in, in some of the things in the folklore that have happened. Sure. Uh, do you believe in not any other types of strange things, like you work in the defense, perhaps in like aerial UFOs, that sort of nature? You... So I believe in things that I'm able to find evidence of. Okay. So uh, I don't say that I, when I say I don't believe in ghosts, it's because I haven't found evidence for it. If one shook my hand tomorrow, then I would believe in ghosts. <laughs> okay, so you're you're a nuts and bolts kind of guy. You like to see tangible evidence. You have to do that in my career field. Absolutely. Has to, everything has to be evidence-based. Absolutely. I'll tell you, this is a pleasure to talk with you today. What made you sit down and write a book about this subject matter? I always like to know what makes a person tick. Well, it didn't start off as a book, actually. Okay, okay do tell. <laughs> so my father... His Lions Club ran a haunted attraction for four years, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and their central theme was the Pig Lady of Candleton. They did a historic look at her and, and acted out scenes in this haunted barn. And the whole haunted barn was, was telling her story. Um, well, he found that he was getting a lot of questions that he couldn't answer from folks that were attending the event. So I started researching it, and I found that I liked it. It was a good hobby. Um, and then I started researching other stories that I grew up with. And then my dad said, you know, you're just putting all these stories on a Facebook page. Why don't you see if it can get it published? And here it is. <laughs> Thank God for him. Good yeah. idea. Good idea. Well, tell us a little bit about this region now, because I want to set the backdrop for our listeners. Uh, folks, you have to understand that this book is dealing in, in part with Little Beaver Creek, the surrounding areas, uh, Columbiana County, uh, Carroll, uh, Mahoning, and so on and so forth. Now, this region had a little bit of a violent past, didn't it, Michael? Can, sure did. can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, just being so close in proximity to the Ohio River and all the tributaries, Little Beaver Creek being one of them, uh, it made for a transportation way for the, for the Native Americans originally, and then for the French who came down first from Canada, and then the British shortly thereafter who came to push them out. Everyone used the waterways because there were no roads. Um, so Little Beaver Creek, as, as it dumps into the Ohio, was a good uh, a place to get off the river, and uh, a lot of Native Americans used the area. Uh, for hunting especially. Um, there was a famous Seneca chief called Mingo here, but uh, uh, that actually was hunting in Candleton when Major George Washington, then a major in the Continental Army, uh, actually, no, I'm sorry, uh, before the Continental Army, before, right. came, uh, came scouting the French activity, and, and he looked for him because he knew he needed a guide. Um, and uh, this, this Mingo war chief really wanted to get rid of the French. He hated them. Matter of fact, he said that they boiled and ate his father in front of him. So there was no negotiation with this guy. When I wouldn't think the door would close. The door of opportunity closed he, with that. Yes, I, I he, he was bound and determined to get rid of the French that were building the fort in Pittsburgh, uh, Fort Duquesne. And uh, <laughs> when George Washington met him, 
he uh, he kind of tricked them into attacking a, a French scouting party and started the French and Indian War. Kind of pulled the old hokey dokey yeah. over his eyes on them. Well, this region, would you say, was kind of there was a lot of bloodshed between uh, the early colonist pioneers and the Indians? Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. So after the French and Indian War and Lord Dunmore's War and Pontiac's Rebellion, the British uh, had actually signed a treaty with the natives here in the area that they would not cross the Ohio River as long as they fought the French during the French and Indian War. This is towards the end of the war, Absolutely. when they switched sides. Um, well, immediately they began to double-cross them after the war was over. And French uh, American settlers started pushing into to the territory, and, and the native Delaware and uh, Wyandotte and Shawnee would push back. So the Ohio River became a no-man's land, kind of like a DMZ. Um, and, and the natives, they were outgunned, so they turned early to terrorism. Right. It's what we would call terrorism today. They would attack homesteads that were offended. And you have to remember, folks, to put you in cue of the time period. Um, first of all, you had the Native American Indians using uh, something akin to a war club, a heavy, a heavy club. Um, it wasn't really until the white man introduced his uh, gun with the gunpowder. Eventually, they would prefer that as their own weapon as well. But yes, uh, but they just couldn't get ammo. Right. Uh, once they began attacking the American then British settlements. Settlements there. Now, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. Uh, let's shift our attention now to one Ira Mansfield who lived from 1842 to 1919. He seems yeah. to be the prominent man in your book as far as the progenitor, if you will, of the, yeah. the folklore of this I'm region. I'm uh, such a super fan of that guy. <laughs> I wish I could have known him. Well, on page 21, yes, I've read the book, folks. Uh, on page 21, you said, but oddly, this isn't, it wasn't so much just him, too, but some pictures that you had obtained. So yeah. I'm curious about that. Tell our listeners, how, how did this all come about with Ira Mansfield? Yeah, so Ira seems to have taken up the hobby after the Civil War. He was a Civil War hero, of course. Okay. Because it, it was a hobby of the wealthy back then, and Ira was a wealthy man. Um, it, it was new, and photography was very, very uh, in its infancy right after the Civil War. But um, Ira didn't take it up until about 1870, I think. He took some of the weirdest photos. <laughs> he was bizarre. Some, some strange, strange Esoteric. photos. Esoteric. Yeah, there's, there's some famous ones of him and a whole tug-of-war scene where they're trying to decapitate a turtle for some reason with a rope. Or others where he dressed up as Bluebeard with his, his eight wives with their heads chopped off. And then, of course, he has got a really nice one of uh, creation of Barbara Davidson's head floating out of one of his minds. Boy, I'll tell you, I'd yeah. like to get this guy on the press release. Uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. So he also, um, Ira also served in the uh, Civil War, yes. correct? In uh, 1862. Um, he was also a descendant of, uh, you say in the book, uh, Moses Mansfield. Uh, mm. um, uh, Mansfield, Connecticut was named after him. So he was an adventurous sort. And, yeah. and he uh, he may not have uh, been the greatest of writers, but let's just give him his due. He was a good, would you say, showman. I mean, he could tell Absol a good story. Absolutely. He yeah, he wrote five books, I believe. Wow. Yeah, yeah I believe that's correct. A wide variety. History, geology, botany. Botany. Uh, yeah. He liked plants, flora, mm -hmm. fauna. Yeah. Um, he also formed the... Uh, the Robin Hood Robin Club. Hood. Yeah, the original Robin Hood Club was formed right after the war. It was uh, an adventurous club for for vets that uh, just couldn't seem to settle down. So they would go camping and fishing and hunting, and he would write about it. But that eventually, as they started to pass on, 
uh, he converted the club over to a female organization for teachers and suffragettes. He was very uh, a big proponent of the suffrage movement. It's very um, interesting. He had a very, very uh, unique personality mm-hmm. and a wide range of things. At this point, I'm going to go on in Chapter 2, which was the, if, like I like to say, the main event. Uh, this was about, of course, the pig lady of My Kennelton. favorite story. Favorite story. I, I'm going to take the rolls, uh, the wheels off the you know, roller coaster here, the brakes off. Now, I see, I would like now to go back in time, let's say about 30 years ago. Uh, you mentioned in your book, uh, folks, please pick the book up. It's an excellent book, uh, Legends and Lore of Little Beaver Creek. I want to say that right. It's just Booker. Kish Booker. Yeah, like I like German. Kish Booker. Yes. A little bit of German in there. I got to brush up. Now, your uncle and your father are sitting around the campfire. I'm going to take you back 30 oh, years. Yeah. Fire's crackling. Here comes your uncle. You know, now young Michael is hearing these tales for the first time around the campfire. Tell our listeners, you know, an abbreviated version of course, oh. <laughs> you know, what 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 started this all? Because you heard that pig lady of yes, I guess he felt I was ready to be scared for the first time. <laughs> but yeah, just a normal background backyard campfire with the kids, you know, uh-huh. roasting marshmallows, and my uncle starts telling the story of Barbara Davidson and um, how she was brutally murdered and and her she was decapitated. Mm-hmm. Nobody found they all the neighbors took up the search and could not find her body. I mean, I'm sorry, her head, but uh, or the the perpetrator, right? Exactly. Um, and then one night, uh, many weeks later, uh, folks started seeing uh, an apparition with the the head of a uh, of a swine. Right. Um, she would turn around and squeal at him and scare him off. Um, so <laughs> now, these, I got to tell you, folks, that we're abbreviating this, but please yeah. get the book to learn the tale, but. Um, there were multiple people who Absolutely. claimed these things over many, many years. Yeah, it folks wasn't still see things. Still see things today. Yeah. Um, the original, uh, I guess, I want to say gravestone was long gone. Mm-hmm. I believe they placed a wooden placket or, was, or something yeah. to that point. Uh, it's a it's a real tale, and I can it see is. how it impresses its upon a young man. And you say, wait, what? Yeah, and it's kind of strange how the story evolved because it is. It is um, in Ira's day, and when he told the story, it didn't involve a pig's head. Yeah, so. tell tell us a little bit about that, like the history of Ira Mansfield original take on this because yeah because it's very interesting you say the story does change a little over time right so ira uh he owned a orchard and Candleton uh Candle coal mines in Candleton, mm-hmm. for which the town is named uh up on valley road and his version of the story is a uh, uh one of the uh teamsmen driving uh an, an apple cart was coming down the, the road late at night and as they were coming past the mines, uh, an apparition formed on the on the lead horse, right, right in front right. of him, while he's driving the cart. Yes, and of course, spooked the animal. Oh, how and they frightening took off. that could be! Certainly, right. He could make out the body, but he could, there was no head. Absolutely. And as soon as they got to the old um, McCaskey Davidson homestead, the apparition floated off to the towards the ruins and disappeared. That was Ira's version. Right. Um, today. Uh, for some reason, uh, you know, you, uh, folks have played that game of uh, telephone and somehow incorporated uh, a pig's head for her missing head. It's kind of interesting. In my research, I found that there were other pig lady legends 
Uh, There's many variations. Yeah. Well, I don't want to say many variations, but there are a few yeah, so that, that, that change over time with, with not so much the main character, but there have been different, I don't want to say solutions, but endings to it. Uh, some involve um, who the killer was. There's many theories on that, uh, which brings me to an interesting point in your book. I, I commend you on the fact that Michael in the book, folks, he likes to also tell you the tale, but at the end, he, he's going to give you a scenario based on the information that he's obtained. But he also, towards the end of the book, you give kind of a scenario in an alternate based upon what you speculate or, or feel may also have contributed to some of these legends. Yeah, and, yeah so that was to look at it, try and understand maybe some sociological or economic or even political motivations that might have also helped form the legend right uh, and uh, I think I'm not trying to say that these are in fact what happened but right it's an alternative theory that mm-hmm. I think most will find interesting at least I hope they do I think they will I really do on page 35 you say Barbara's ghost isn't the only one uh, that sometimes people encounter another more malevolent entity um, can you tell us a little bit about that yeah that's the entity with the red eyes um, it's been seen by many folks in Candleton, and this one, when, when they encounter Barbara, it is not scary. It's a warning, usually. But when they encounter this red-eyed whatever, mm-hmm. uh, it definitely feels like they're in danger. Right. And t- folks tend to run. <laughs> it, it growls. Um, at least from the the, the uh, stories that we the were initial able to collect. Pur- purported stories yeah. that, that you've collected in this series. Some speculate that it is the the killer, his his spirit or her spirit. Well, uh, that's Barbara. that's interesting too because I'll, that leads into my next question perfectly. Uh, in total, you came up with with no less than like four different theories on mm-hmm. page sixty five of the book. Uh, they are as follows: uh, life and crime of the frontier, sure. and maybe there was some type of foul play, you know, because yeah, I'd her brother elaborate was, on that. Ira wrote quite a bit about her brother being a thief and a counterfeiter. Yeah. So oh. if yeah. if she was around folks like that then you know possibility uh-huh. birds of a feather flock together or something right. of sort. Uh, how about ge- geography or geographical terrorism tell us what you mean yeah so if if she was uh, murdered in in the 1790s uh, it was the right at the height of the um, a war that's largely forgotten now but right. it's called the Northwest Indian War and it was really our first American war war it was. I mean, it started in 1789, right after the revolution was was over. Some would even say, like the French and Indian War was kind of our first world war in a way because right. it involved both Europe and mm-hmm. what would later become the United States. But absolutely. But the the Northwest Indian War was was the United States, States finally war. after mm-hmm. the after we had won the revolution. Just mm-hmm. after we won the revolution. revolution. That's when the uh, the. The British had still held many of the forts, including Fort Detroit. Absolutely. Um, they refused to give it up after the, the revolution. Um, and they were arming the natives and kind of setting off a proxy war uh, just to irritate us just quite a bit. <laughs> and, keep, but these, keep picking these, us off one by one. That's right. So these, these, uh, the natives were, were incurring across the Ohio River uh, when that, whenever they could, and, and usually in the summertime. But... Uh, they would come across, raid farms, and kill folks, uh, and then head back to Ohio, where they were protected. Right. 
uh, by the British that were still kind of they were just safe, kind of like running across the old parallel right. there. They're not going to be touched. Well, of course, uh, number three, I don't think needs much of an explanation. But you said a jilted lover. Perhaps it was the jilted lover that killed Barbara. Yeah. So. Barbara McCaskey uh, married into the, uh, Nathan Davidson, who was allegedly uh, an army veteran. Um, so if he had fought in the revolution or if he had fought in the Northwest Indian Wars, which were very horrible, gruesome, very, very gruesome, gruesome. Um, he likely might have had PTSD. And that brings me to point four. Very good. Yeah. PTSD, uh, post-traumatic syndrome. Um, uh, excuse me, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you're saying that could have been a, a factor to all of this too, maybe. Perhaps. Yeah, unfortunately, it's always a factor when you're dealing with a, a combat veteran. Absolutely. Especially well, back then when there was no help. Right. Maybe in, in his own way, the Robin Hood Club helped her. Oh, with in Ira, some way, yes. with Ira Mansfield help to uh, hopefully alleviate some of that, but I'm, I'm yeah. sure there was, there was quite a bit with those horrific mm. battles uh, that were waged. Um, on page 81, chapter 4, I'll, I'll go over now to Gretchen's Lock. I don't want to spend too much time on all the stories. I want people to read that book. Pick that book up, folks. That's Legends and Lore of Little Beaver Creek. Michael Kish. Booker. That's right. There we go. I got it. There we go. Now, there at Gretchen's Lock, tell us, won't you, about the tale of the legend uh, in the theory that deals with, you know, everything. I, I love the whole thing with swamp, swamp fever as well, but go ahead. I want you to so, tell us. So, yeah, uh, Gretchen's Lock, allegedly, the chief engineer of the Sandian Beaver Canal, Mr. Gill, um, was building the locks there, the, the system through Spruce Vale, which is now part of uh, Little Beaver Creek State Park. And his daughter, unfortunately, passed away from malaria. Well, her mother had passed away on the way over from Europe. He was brought over, according to the tale, to work on this canal system as a chief engineer um, by the canal company. Uh, and she, she died on the way over on the ship and was buried at sea. Well, when Gretchen was very ill with, with a fever, and she was hallucinating, and, and she asked to be buried with her mother. Well, of course, that very much distressed her father. Um, but nonetheless, when she died, he was going to carry out those wishes. He had to finish the lock he was working on, so he, he entombed her in it. Wow. And then finished the system over the next year. And then when he was done, retrieved the body and headed back overseas. Mm-hmm. Along the way, they uh, ran into a storm and the whole ship was lost. So. She was buried with her mother. Folks claim that they see her now and again on her lock or around her lock, asking to be buried with her mother or it's to see her mother popular, again. It's a very popular haunted area, as, it people call it, yeah. as people call it. Very close to Esther Hale's location as well. Yes, Esther Hale, yes. Very. Do you think there's any coincidence with, between the stories because Ira Mansfield was so involved in both? Ira wrote about them all. Yeah, he, <laughs> so he was definitely uh, a He has his hand prints all over that. He does. Well, he loved to tell <laughs> stories around campfires, just like my uncle and my dad did. Exactly. And exactly. that's, I think, why we have these, these legends preserved today. And I think it makes it more interesting, don't you? I do. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to skip ahead because there's all kinds of uh, other stories you have in the book, uh, Vanishing Village, but I don't want to give all the pearls away. So let's go to the second part of the book. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. I enjoy the second part more because I know 
being who I am in legends and lore. A lot of the first part of this book, but the Nobs, Candleton, and the Sun God yeah. part of the book, very fascinating. I like some of these ideas and the conjecture that you bring into it and introduce into it. So let's go now to round page 106. Let's shift our focus now to the latter half of the book, Nobs, Frauds, and the Candleton Sun God. I, I just, I even love the title of that. It piques <laughs> my interest. It piques my interest. You know, outside of the pig lady, Indian Rock, it- it's such a mystery. No one really knows why it's there or what it's well, for. I'll tell you, I've been working on that same mystery for about 20-some years. So it is a very interesting uh, um, site, and it has caused some controversy sure. over the years. Um, so is it your belief that Ira Mansfield somehow was involved in Colonel Bouquet's um, campaign in Ohio? No, he would have been, uh, Colonel Bouquet's campaign was in the, in the 1700s. So oh, he would, excuse me, yeah. I'm sorry, yes. But sorry. he did preserve the story by forming a camp there and calling it Camp Bouquet, camp. where he thought that they camped on their way to rescue the, the folks during um, the Pontiac's Rebellion. Um, so he, he was, a, well, you said it before, I was a historian. Yes, he just he, yeah, and he, he, very he did enthralled. it not only by preserving museum quality artifacts, writing books, mm-hmm. but he wanted to teach the history orderly and show the folks where the things happened. So Camp Bouquet is one of them. He would take them and show them where the Scots Highlanders were encamped. Right, Scottish Highlanders that were brought over. F- right for the uh, uh, well, that was involved in the French and Indian War as mm-hmm. well. Uh, Bouquet. Yeah, uh, um, but he was a terrible person. Oh, <laughs> Henry Bouquet. Yeah. Probably, uh, I I know uh, Ira probably didn't know this, but uh, Henry Bouquet actually gave smallpox blankets. That's what I wanted to ask you about. Now, yeah. let, let me ask you, uh, talk about the first element of germ warfare, if you will, folks. This isn't really a stretch. Please elucidate. Yeah, so tell most, us what uh, you've theorized. A lot of folks know that infected blankets were handed to Native Americans. Absolutely. A lot of them don't know what happened here at Fort Pitt. That's where it first started. And, the, and that it dealt with Bouquet at that yeah, time. Colonel, I, it was Colonel. Camp 7, is that it? Camp? Um, so he, he handed out the blankets from the infirmary at okay. Fort Pitt okay. to the Delaware uh, Nation that was here closest to the fort. fort. And then they would trade the blankets further into the other nations and devastated. It, it just decimated the, the native tribes that had no immunity to this disease. They knew at the time they didn't have the strength to take on the natives, mm-hmm. but after the disease ravaged them um, and the later end of the Northwest Indian Wars, that's really what I feel turned the tide for the American side. It was it was definitely a major factor. Yeah, in, absolutely. In that. And it started with the British, but then, then the Americans, of course, reaped the benefits because the the the, the disease was already there. Yeah. Wow. Truly amazing. I mean, when you put all of these pieces together. Uh, yeah, from, smallpox from, is a terrible, terrible disease. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm now going to go back. I'll, I'll jump a little bit back now to page 114. You say, let's discuss your findings. Some of Mansfield's claims uh, on Indian Rock, um, uh, you know, he, he, all over the book, I mean, between the ancient mound builders and what do you believe? I, I know you consulted Dr. Uh, Jared Burks, uh, director of uh, geophysical uh, surveys from Ohio State, right? yeah. from the state of Ohio, and gathered some information. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so in Ira's writings, I was surprised to find that he believed he had 
unearthed on a few hills in Candleton and Negley area and a little bit further into Columbiana County, um, ancient mounds and, and ring forts that he called them ring forts. I don't know if that's what they are, the archaeologists would call them today. Call them today. <laughs> but uh, he found lots of carvings of animals and native scenes. And, and I never heard about this. I grew up in this area, you know. You were, you were local yeah. at that point, yeah. And you um, never... He even talked about grave robbing some of the, the burial mounds um, freely. I, I guess that was... Openly, a, that was something that was... A, it wasn't uh, thought of as a... Acceptable at yeah, that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, sad. Uh, it is sad. But um, so I, I was very unaware of this, and I contacted um, Dr. Burks to see if any of this could be possibly true. And he pointed me to an archaeological survey from... Uh, the 19 teens, I can't remember the exact date, of Ohio, of all the native sites, and there are many around here. Absolutely. There's, there's a burial mound in Negley um, that probably was the one Ira was talking about. There's, uh, there's one here in, in Darlington um, that my grandfather told me about, and I had to go look in the Pennsylvania sites, uh, and it, it is just over by the lake. Just, uh, just up the road here. Yeah. Just up the road. Well, you know, I, I noticed, too, in the book, you said sometimes he would refer to things that so you believe um, from some of his own books and writings that he was often uh, changing the name or, or maybe going back and forth with the knob or the yeah. uh, back and forth. So he, he, he kind of understood this area, though, probably from his military time. On yeah, the I think he named some of the local hills and knobs after some of the battles that, that he, he took yeah. that he fought. Yeah, like Round Knob. In your assessment of one Ira Mansfield, what was he, a hopeless romantic of Beaver? Was he uh, a pseudo-historian? Uh, the Ohio historian, James Murphy, in the book, he put it, uh, you know, do you believe he's more of a romantic, or, or do you think, you know, he, he had a love for this? Where, where does Ira Mansfield fall in in your eyes? You know what? Uh, whether or not he had the training and the and the education to do right. what he did, he right. loved this place, and he was just fascinated by local history, and and nature. Mm-hmm. Um, he was not out to try and spook people with some fun right. stories. He he wanted to entertain. So, and I, I would like I said I wish I'd been around to meet the guy. <laughs> I think he accomplished it. We have no. We don't have to worry about ghost stories going away. That's for sure. So he worried about it. He actually wrote about that he, that right? he thought that uh, education was going to uh, going to um, ruin all the fun. <laughs> Lucky for us, it didn't. It did not. <laughs> With how many shows that are on now referring to paranormal shows and, That's right. and what have you. Now, uh, uh, yeah, Ira might have been one of the first legend trippers. <laughs> yeah, he may have been the first, the very first colonial type uh, pioneer tripper. Well, Michael, I got to tell you, it is a pleasure, and it has been a pleasure today talking with you. Folks, I encourage you, if you love folklore and legends, do yourself a favor. Go out, pick up a copy, Legends and Lore of Little Beaver Creek, okay? Michael Kish Hooper. Uh, This is the History Press Arcadia book family. Um, I'm sure it can be picked up, Amazon, Internet, so believe me well-written book. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Tony. Uh, You're welcome. This has been your guest host, Tony Lavorno, for the Little Beaver Historical Society podcast. Take care, folks. You 
You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. 